25, it's page 941 in the Black Bibles. We're still in Romans, no surprise. Romans 325, I'm going to read down to 326. So this is the second message that's tied to last week. Verse 25 here. Apostle Paul speaking. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, let's pray. Father, we um, come before you and ask you for grace. God, you know uh, that I don't know uh, what people are feeling in this room, what they're thinking, uh, what they're going through. But God, you do. And you tell us uh, that those who draw near to you, you will in turn draw near too. And so we pray that by your Holy Spirit, God, you would be bringing us near to you, that we might see uh, the sights that you see and see the way you see and hear the way you hear and feel what you feel. And God, you would carry forth your purpose in your people of making us like Jesus. God, you have promised that your word will not return void. And God, we hold you to that and trust that you will do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let me start by saying this. Um, this uh, message has a lot to do, or some to do, a good portion to do with the wrath of God. If you guys remember, the last time I was here, Luke had me teach on the wrath of God. Now, I don't know what that means um, or why he's bringing me in for such a time as this, but uh, we will do it, and this is a significant portion of Scripture. So here's a question I want to start off in asking you. Have you ever been in between a rock and a hard place? You've heard that statement before. Have you ever been between a rock and a hard place? More specifically, have you ever been in between a rock and a hard place seeking to vindicate your name? Seeking to vindicate your name. People are questioning why you did what you did. People are questioning why you said what you said. Or people are questioning why you didn't do what you didn't do. Or why you didn't say what you didn't say. Have you ever been in that position where you feel like it's not totally accurate and you're seeking to vindicate your name? You may not use the word vindicate very often, but here's what it means. One definition is to clear someone of blame or suspicion. The next definition below it says to show or prove to be right, reasonable, justified that you're seeking to justify yourself against public opinion. How many of you watched um, the George Zimmerman trial or followed it, watched or followed? So a decent amount. It's, it's a pretty hefty trial. It's, the media is all over it. If you read any news publication, whether online or in print, I promise you today, because a verdict came in last night that George Zimmerman was not guilty in the shooting death of Trayvon Martin. He did shoot him, but he wasn't found guilty of murder and or manslaughter in the midst of this. And this has been quite a trial and very conflicting if you follow it. If you know of that trial at all, think about this proverb 
from Proverbs in the Bible. Proverbs 17.15 says this, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Abomination, hatred, God hates those who justify the wicked, make right the wicked, and those who condemn the righteous. He hates it. He hates the justification of the wicked and the condemning of the righteous. Now, if you are a juror in this case, this is the anxiety of it. Deep in the human heart, whether you believe or whether you don't believe, deep in the human heart, when we're truest to what it means to be human, you are sitting there as a juror going, I do not want to condemn a man who's not guilty. And at the same time, I certainly don't want to let free or make right a man who is guilty. I neither want to condemn the righteous or justify the wicked. And that's the angst in this whole entire trial. This trial presents so much complexity and is just a picture, a real-life picture of how marred our world is by sin. The first three and a half chapters of the book of Romans, all the way up until last week, this was Paul, through the Holy Spirit, making the case for how marred and wrecked by sin the entirety of the world is. And yet, last week, Josh gets up here and says that God goes after the wicked human beings, that God has built a case all the way up into last week, and then says in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but that God has justified them, redeemed them through Christ. In so doing, God has put himself in quite a position in between a rock and a hard place, if you will. God himself hates the justification of the wicked, Proverbs 17 says, and he hates the condemnation of the righteous. If that's an abomination to him, is God justified right in making sinners right? Is he justified in justifying Sinners, go back to the definition of vindicate for a minute, to show or to prove right, reasonable, justified. I want to know, you should know, the, op- the recipients of this book, we're asking, and Paul is presenting the question right here, is God right in making sinners right? He needs to be vindicated. So today, God's on trial in the portion of Scripture that we're on, and we're going to look at this. We're going to look at the problem God finds himself in. We're going to look at the solution he provides, and then we're going to ask, is it satisfying? The problem, the solution, and is it satisfying? So here's the problem. The problem is that God is holy, sin is heinous, and yet God has brought sinners into his presence. God is righteous, holy, God is righteous, sinners are unrighteous, and God in Christ has brought sinners into His holy presence, which the Bible is very clear that sin cannot be in the presence of a holy God. And yet God has redeemed them. That means bought them back, brought them together. You know, um, 
moments in your life when you just feel like, you know, that's not sufficient. You, you, you find yourself in this problem. As a parent, you find yourself in this situation a lot. So there's these moments, like one of the ones that comes to my head is where your kid, you're laying on the couch, your kid comes up and he starts bouncing on the couch, bouncing, bouncing, bouncing. And then they jump. You say, stop doing that. You're going to hurt somebody. And then they do it again. They jump, they jump, they jump, they fall. And you go, don't do that. You're going to hurt somebody. And then they jump, they jump, they jump, they slip. And their head crashes into your head, right? And your nose kind of starts trickling, bleeding. You're like, I know I'm going to have a black eye tomorrow and I have a really big meeting. And they laugh. And you're like, hey, listen, punk. Are, are you kidding me? Like, do you not see that this is a big deal? I told you three times not to do that. You know, no more monkeys jumping on the bed, right? Like, you bumped me in the head, and this is problematic, and they laugh. Now, that's a light way to communicate something that this next illustration is going to be much weightier. And it's going to be weightier for this reason. You and I will not get the gravity of this passage. Therefore, the extraordinary beauty and significance of what God has done, if you don't grasp how heinous and sick and dark sin really is. So imagine this. You go home tonight. You've been at the grocery store. You come in to your house, open the door, and your worst possible thought has come true. Your whole family has been slaughtered. You see your whole family there, but one of your children. You cross around the corner, and you see the criminal, the murderer, standing right there. With one of your children still having life in their body, the criminal looks you straight in the face, takes your child's head, breaks their neck, they drop to the floor, and he looks at you and laughs. Runs out the back door, you run out the front door, you meet him in the street as he's running, and you clock him. Whack! He falls to the ground. The neighbors call the police. The police get there. The police take him away. You are trying to just deal with your emotions. Your family has gone through a horrifically unjust crime. Your whole life is shattered. You cannot even begin to imagine or sort out in your mind what normal looks like from here. And they say, we're going to take him in and we're going to put him on trial. Months go by, you show up at the place, everything within you is crying out for justice. The trial goes on and at the end of the day, the judge says this, I am an extraordinarily loving judge. And because I'm a loving judge, and he looks at the defendant, the criminal, he says, go free. Go free. I am so loving, go free. What are you thinking? You're horrified. You are outraged. At that very moment, you're on your phone and you're writing letters to the court system. You're writing letters to the state government and the federal government as high up as you can possibly go to say, this judge is more wicked than the criminals he pardons. And he does it in the name of love. You would be crying out, this cannot be. God has built a case for three and a half chapters in the book of Romans about the sinfulness of sin. And what frightens me sometimes in our culture is that we don't feel the gravity of this sin, how vile it is, how abhorrent it is. So let's go on a journey just for a minute to understand this with a little more clarity. Sin came into the world and wrecked God's good world. The end of the curse that God lays down upon the serpent and Adam and Eve, he says this, that 
what he has called us to do in work that was meant to be worked with joy and excellence and in worship to God now will bear us only thorns and thistles. Your unemployment in this world, for whatever reason that it might be, is there because of sin. Your feeling of sickness, of not being able to provide for yourself or provide for your family, is there because of sin. Sin's effect of bearing us thorns and thistles. Your hatred of being unemployed and your hatred of being employed, for all of you who hate your job, is there because of sin. Natural disasters that end in death are there because of sin, because sin's effects and consequences have gone deep into the earth to the point that trees no longer live forever but die. It's affected our interpersonal relationships at such a deep, deep degree that as many children, if not more, grow up in homes that are broken than homes that are stable. The more research that you do in families that are meant to be loving and caring, you understand at a more deep level, children are being abused at astonishing rates. It affects them both physically and even deeper emotionally and physically and spiritually that they can never think straight about it again. Many of those children who were abused then in turn end up abusing their children. The realities of what we call generational sin is that people learn from the environments that were around. Sin propagates itself over and over and over again. People are fired. Governments are ousted. People are murdered and killed, and then in the end, like Abel, say, am I my brother's keeper? And God is sitting there going, is that the question? Am I my brother's keeper? Yes. Has it gone that dark and that twisted that those who are wicked are now being called right? It wrecks humans' perceptions of themselves the very thing that would make a George Zimmerman so insecure that he hasn't gotten the job that he wanted in being a police officer, that even when the police officers say, no, don't go do it, he goes and does it. The very thing that's going to make Trayvon Martin smoke marijuana and live in a world that has made him so angry, the world doing horrible things to him, his heart revealing his own sinfulness, that he gets so angry that in the end, as a man begins to pursue him, he wants to crush him. It's personal, inside. How do I view myself? The very thing that makes you nervous to walk into a room and all the insecurity that you feel inside because you feel like you're just not right in this room. It's all the result of sin. And then in the end, what it has done to God. David, when he commits sin with Bathsheba, He sleeps with another man's wife, and then in the end, to cover up his sin, to justify himself, to make sure nobody sees it, to cover it up, he kills this woman's husband, premeditated, first-degree murder. And then when he prays, he prays before God, God, it is against you and you alone that I have sinned. What? Really? Like you and you alone? Like you didn't sin against Bathsheba? You didn't sin against Uriah, her husband, that you murdered? You didn't sin against that whole entire army that Uriah was leading into battle and putting him in the front end and killing him? Really? Just against God. And that is what brings up the reality in our own lives that we do not understand that the vertical, us before God and us before others, is always deeply connected. 
that when we sin against others, we sin against God. It breaks the heart of God that his people in his good creation have rebelled against him, bought the lie of the enemy, the one who in pride, Lucifer, rises up against God and says, I don't want your way. God says, we can't have any of this. Sin cannot be a sight. Cast him and a third of the angels out of heaven. That very Lucifer, that very devil shows up in the garden that God has made and tells us, believe me rather than God. And the way he says it is, trust yourself. You can be like God. And we believe the lie. Everything, all of sin, is a direct offense against a holy God. Looted homes, stolen cars, a wrathful word against your spouse. And yet, God says this, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but they're made right. Verse 24, they're made right by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ. He makes them right. How does God justify the wicked? It says it's an abomination to him in Proverbs 17, but he redeems them. The picture of this to Jews would be of the Exodus, that a people that was under slavery of a foreign oppressive power, they were crying out. God says, I've heard their cries, right? This is the nation of Israel in Egypt. I've heard their cries, and he calls a man. And they are redeemed out of Egypt. That's what the Jews would have been hearing in the word redemption brought up in Romans. What would the Romans have been hearing? The word redemption spoke of a slave, an individual slave who was on a slave block that somebody comes in and purchases their pardon and brings them back to themselves. They purchase pay bail, if you will, permanent, lifelong bail for this person. But God did this to the wicked, and how is he just in so doing? Should God be vindicated for vindicating sinners? Is God righteous in making sinners right? Well, here's the solution. That's the problem. Here's the solution. God has vindicated his name through putting Christ forward. Verse 25, the redemption that is in Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Let me read that again. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. God vindicated his name by putting Christ forward. Is that sufficient payment? And if so, how? That's the key question. Is that sufficient payment? And if so, how? Prove to me that that's sufficient. Have you ever been insufficiently compensated, right? That's that story of um, my children jumping on the bed and then falling, crushing me in the face, and then laughing feels insufficient. That feels like an insufficient response. Like, I feel like at that moment going, no, you should give me your entire life savings after you've worked 45 years, all of your retirement, to justify what you just did to me. That's insufficient. A laugh is insufficient. And then they go, oh, you know, I'm sorry, Dad. No, that's not sufficient. That isn't sufficient for what you've done. If that's not sufficient, what is sufficient to say that we've sinned and it's marred the entire universe of God? 
What is it to say that we've been the epitome of a Benedict Arnold and believed the lies of the enemy, trusted in the lies of the enemy that would exalt ourselves before a God who loves us and is continually giving to us? Can he just wipe it clean? Well, here's what the passage says, that God put forward a, here's a big Greek word, a hilasterion that the ESV translates propitiation. The reason I use the Greek word is that I'm going to bring you into a little bit of a preacher's dilemma as they're looking for the meaning of a passage. There's a big word um, in Bible study called exegesis. Exegesis just means you're trying to get the actual meaning of this text. One of the dilemmas a preacher has is as they engage scholarly works and you work your through way through a passage, every scholar doesn't agree on a specific interpretation of the Bible. Now, if you're writing guys who take the Bible seriously, they're all in the same ballpark, but there's nuances to it. This word is one of those that is contested on what the actual meaning of this word means. So right now, in order for us to understand the significance of the solution that God provides and be able to answer the last question of, is this solution satisfying? I want to bring you in to my dilemma in interpreting this passage of what this word means. God put forward Christ as a hilasterion. The RSV translation of the Bible translates this word expiation, E-X-P-I-T-I-O-N. Here's what expiation means. It means the wiping away of sin. It would somewhat connotate the notion that Isaiah has when he says, though your sins are like scarlet, they have been made white as snow. And there is no smears. White as freshly fallen snow, for those of you who've grown up in the Midwest and know of like muddy mess snow, freshly fallen snow. It's the wiping away. Now, do we want and crave expiation, the wiping away of sin? You're certainly right we do. Those moments in our lives, those things that we've done that we wish we wouldn't do, that you just go make it go away. What you're craving for in that moment is expiation, the wiping away of sin. Those things that you didn't do, that you knew you should have done. Oh, I wish how I could go back. The wiping away of that omissionary sin, that thing you should have done. This is the power in the Bible when it says that you have been washed. You have been cleansed. The darkness and sickness of your sin has been wiped away. Expiation. Now, the version that we use here at Redemption Church, the ESV, says that God put forward as a propitiation. Now, this is a really heavy word. Propitiation, it means this, the exhausting of God's wrath. God put forward Christ to exhaust God's wrath against sin. Now, let's break that down for a minute. Exhaustion. I've, um, at the recommendation of some of my CrossFitter friends, um, entered into the CrossFit craze three times, okay, which tells you the first two times didn't go very well, and the third time I haven't been that consistent. Um, I was exhausted to the point in my first two times that at the end of my workout I destroyed my back. 
um, to the point, and at other points have been exhausted to where I've lied prostrate on the ground thinking that I was going to drown in my own vomit because I was about to throw up, that I wouldn't be able to lift my neck. Exhaustion is there's nothing left. You're gassed. It's gone. Propitiation means the exhaustion of God's wrath and anger against sin that's been built up from the day that Adam and Eve disobeyed him, from the day that Lucifer began to disobey him. God hates sin. Matt Moore, one author, says this, how many of you have ever heard a sermon on the hatred of God? Many people believe this, God is love, therefore he cannot hate. Matt Moore says this, false. God is love, therefore he cannot hate. False. That is not correct. God is love, therefore he must hate. Now you stop and go, hmm? He says, think about it this way. Do you love babies? If you love babies, you must hate abortion. If you love Jewish people, you must hate the Holocaust. If you love God, you must hate sin. There is no neutrality. If you truly love that which is right, there is also an animosity, an enmity against all that is contradictory to love. God loves all that is right. He loves all that is true. He loves all that is virtuous. But scripture after scripture tell us that his hatred is manifested against love's opposite, wickedness. Do we need propitiation? Well, allow me to say it this way. If God is so powerful that by his very word, he spoke the universe into existence. He spoke galaxies into existence, orbiting planets, the moon, the sun. He hung the stars in place by his powerful word. And by his powerful word, the book of Colossians and the book of Hebrews says he upholds the universe right now by the power of his word. Let's come right down to where you sit. He's upholding your body right now, the molecules together by the word of his power. If he is that powerful, what is the power of his wrath against sin? And which one of us could withstand it? Not a one. Who can withstand the full, powerful wrath and anger of God against sin? Only God. Only God could withstand his wrath. Only God could stand in the place of exhausting the full wrath of God. Now read verse 25. Whom God put forward to be the propitiation for our sin. Do we need propitiation? Church, do we need propitiation? The last um, way that you can translate this 
word is sacrifice of atonement. That's in the NIV, and it has to do with the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. Now, for those of you who don't know um, your Old Testament very well, which was me, is many of us, let me tell you this. The the place that the, the Jews came to worship when it was finally established was the temple, and it was a place of worship, just that. And out in the courtyard, there were animals being sold that sacrifices might be made that God would pass over and make right sinners. But the Jews had a day of worship once a year called Yom Kippur, which means the Day of Atonement. And on this day, not any priest, but only the high priest could go all the way to the holiest place in all of the temple. Now, in this temple, there was a lobby, and then you would enter in, and you'd come into a space, and then you'd walk into the holy place. And as you passed through the holy place, there was a huge, thick curtain. Behind that curtain was the holy of holies, or the most holy place, that only one person could go, and that once a year. And it wasn't just any priest. It was the high priest. And yet that high priest was a human being, so he had to walk in to the Holy of Holies, look at the Ark of the Covenant. On top of the Ark of the Covenant was a place called the Mercy Seat. There were two angels surrounding it. The presence of God was dwelling upon the Mercy Seat. The angels would cover their face because God's presence is so holy, and it was there that sacrifices were made. But there was a problem. The high priest was to himself a sinner, so he brought two sacrifices a sacrifice for his own sin, and a sacrifice on behalf of the people. The high priest represented the people to God and God to the people, and because of sin, a sacrifice had to be made. But these sacrifices that were also happening outside in the temple, they happened over and over and over, day by day. And every single year, the Day of Atonement came. The book of Hebrews tells us why was it repetitive? Because the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. And the wages of sin is what? Death. Blood has to be shed. Sin has deathly consequences. Literally, deathly consequences. People are killed. People are murdered. And you go, oh yeah, but that's the really bad people. And then Jesus comes upon the scene and says, if you've hated somebody in your heart, you've committed murder already. The book of Proverbs says that words kill or words give life. You choose. Your words kill people. Hatred in your heart is murder in the sight of a holy God. Deathly consequences from sin in our world. We live in a world of darkness and death because of sin. Therefore, the consequences of sin is death. But these sacrifices that were made over and over again could not take away sin. The mercy seat, Hebrews chapter 9, God put forward, putting forward Christ, you can go home and read Hebrews chapter 9, was for the purpose of a once-for-all sacrifice. These sacrifices were repeated because they never fully and eternally took away sin. But Christ has been put forward as a sacrifice of atonement to once and for all, once and for all, take away sin. Church, do we want Christ to be put forward as the sacrifice of atonement? Yes. So what is it? Expiation, propitiation, Sacrifice of atonement. Yes, please, God, all of them. Right? All of them. And the scriptures testify to 
all of them. It was in this moment of Christ upon the cross that the father turned his face away from himself, from his very own son. The first time in history and the only time in history that when Jesus cried out, Father, Father, that the father didn't answer. He turned his face away and he poured forth his entire wrath against all of our sin, all of the sin that has ever existed in the world. And Jesus was in the loneliest place that any human being has ever experienced by far. Why? So that you and I might be made right and be brought before the one we were made for. What does that mean, church? Well, here's the first thing it means. It means that we recognize the grace of this, that this is a gift. Grace saturates this book. It saturates it. You squeeze this book and grace oozes out. You pick this book up and squeeze it and grace oozes out. God is making all things new in his son. The brokenness of all of creation is being restored in Christ. The brokenness of your family is being sought to be restored in Christ. The brokenness of your human heart that you would be transferred out of the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of his beloved son. You have to recognize it as a gift. And then if you get that, deep down, the only possible response is extreme thanksgiving. And you begin to realize it's all by grace. There is nothing that I have that is not by grace. I deserve nothing but the full wrath of God. This is why Paul tells the Corinthians, what do you have that you didn't receive? Answer, nothing. Then why do you boast as though you didn't receive it, as though you earned it? Everything is of grace, and salvation is of grace in grace alone. It's a gift. It develops thanksgiving. And when God's people are thankful, there's a very consistent theme in Scripture, and it's exhorted and taught so. It results in generosity, inclusion, and justice. God didn't just save you to save you. Ephesians 2, he saved you unto good works, that you would begin to live like Jesus, that we would live as a people that screams to the world, this is what life looks like when Christ is king. We've been transferred out of the selfish domain of darkness, the one that thinks only about, other, only about ourselves and not about others, and we've been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son in which we think all the time about others. How do we bring others in? How do we become welcoming? How are we more hospitable? How do we give ourselves away? That's the life of Christ. We've been saved unto good works. Here's the last reality of this. Is this satisfying? Is this satisfying? Through Christ, God was shown to be both just and the justifier of those who have faith. Look at the second part of verse 25. He put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here's the question. Is this satisfying? If God was on trial today to be vindicated, how, God, are you righteous in justifying the wicked? 
and you're saying that you're justified in condemning the wicked by making the righteous one, Jesus, guilty. You know those, those moments in real life when you just know you're, you're not satisfied, like it's done, but you're not satisfied, like the end of the OJ trial, there was this sense of like a lot of people celebrating and then a bunch of other people going, but everybody in the end is just like, ah, something just doesn't feel right there. What, whether we know the full details, you just went, that's not satisfying. Or the end of the George Zimmerman trial last night, I don't care which side of this you landed on, nobody was satisfied. The people that thought he should get off are terrified and horrified because they know his life's never going to be the same. The people who think it's totally unjust and that he should have been guilty are horrified that a man got off like that. Other people are horrified at the stand your ground laws. Whatever it is, is the reality that we live in a world of sin and it's not satisfying. Is Christ being put forward satisfying? Well, here's the deal. It was to God, and there's nobody more concerned about his own righteousness, his own justification, his own glory than God. At Redemption Church, we start every mission statement out and remind ourselves often that it's all for the glory of God. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. God, let our lives count for the hallowing of your name. Let my life count for that. Let my family count for that. Let my work count for that. Let our ministry count for that. God is more concerned with his own glory than we are. He is more concerned about his vindication than you are. His righteousness. This was to show God's righteousness, that he's justified. Tim Savage is the teaching pastor at Camelback Bible in Paradise Valley, and he defines God's righteousness this way. Now, if you didn't see this, the passage takes a turn from how God's making us righteous to his righteousness. He's on the stand. Tim Savage defines righteousness, God's righteousness, this way. God's righteousness is his unswerving commitment to his unrivaled godness. Hear that again, because this is a definition you should memorize. God's righteousness is his unswerving commitment to his unrivaled godness. He doesn't get off of it. He keeps his eyes on the prize and he focuses on it and he goes, this is my unswerving commitment. I won't go to the right, I won't go to the left. It's my unswerving commitment to my unrivaled godness. There is only one God. All of the gods of the nations are but idols. All of the gods of the things that you think is the good life other than God are idols. They're mute, they're deaf, they're dumb, they're not real. His unrivaled commitment, his unswerving commitment to his unrivaled godness. Now, what is his godness? There's two words that we use often for this. His lordship and that he's savior. He's lord and savior. Do you realize that the saving nature of God is not just something that he does? It's built up in his character. The Lord is a savior. Old Testament and new. Jonah 2.9, when he's thrown overboard, the statement is, the Lord saves. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's his, it's his property because it's in his very character. So the only God, way God was going to manifest the truth of his character is by completely being Lord and completely being Savior. By upholding his justice and by justifying. By upholding his truth and displaying his grace. How did he do it? By putting forward Christ to be the expiation, the propitiation 
the sacrifice of atonement, by his justice being fulfilled, by all of his anger against sin being poured out upon the Holy One. And then how does he save? By raising him from the dead, bringing forth all of the realities of new life so that you and I might now live a life of freedom. Freedom. That now Jesus' words, when he says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus' words, I have come to give you life and give it to the full. Not just to wipe away your sin. Not just to exhaust the wrath of God. Not just to make a once-for-all sacrifice, but to bring you into eternal life. The psalmist says, in his presence, there is fullness of joy. And in his right hand, pleasures forevermore. We now know what it really means to be human through Christ. Is that satisfying? That it isn't just the wiping away of your sin, but the bringing you into life everlasting, glory upon glory, joy upon joy, everything you've ever loved about this world being manifested in full color. Is that satisfying? Because it satisfied God. Amen? It satisfied God. What does this mean for us? Well, certainly, verse 27, it means this. Here's the question to all of us. So then what becomes of our boasting? <laughs> I love that. Paul builds us all. Then what becomes of our boasting? You who stand there and go, I'm great. What becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. It is excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. It's all grace. It's all grace. So what does that mean? If our boasting is excluded, it means recognize it as a gift. Be deeply grateful and thankful and live a life of generosity, inclusion, and justice. Let's pray. God, we are amazed by your grace. It is astounding and profound. God, let us see this by the power of your Holy Spirit that we may truly be a thankful people. God, we love you because you first loved us. We are amazed by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Tyler. So now we respond. And if you're like me, that was a lot of information. And that was heavy, heavy information. Talking about the eternal God, his wrath, his justice, how does he stay right, God getting into trouble because of his own plan. That was just a big, weighty message. So here's how I personalized it.